are still with a samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature, approaching the end. Okay? So last time we talked about afflictive mental states and the nature of mind. Yeah? And how the nature of the conventional mind is pure in that the adventitious, uh, the afflictions are adventitious, and that the ultimate nature of the mind is emptiness, and emptiness is pure of inherent existence. But when we talk about the emptiness of an afflicted mind, then from another perspective, we say that the emptiness is uh, defiled because the mind that it is the ultimate nature of is defiled. So what we're getting at here is that there's many different perspectives. Yeah? And where we often get into traps is where we take the meaning in one perspective and try and fit it into another, and it doesn't fit. Yeah? And then we get frustrated and angry and, you know, is it this, is it that? You said it, and you said that, and it's all actually different perspectives. Yeah. And, you know, different perspectives. I mean, we should be quite aware of that, how things... You you take any of, of these guys. You, you take Rosita, yeah? You look at her this way, and you look at her this way, and she looks quite different, Yeah. So you have to see, you know, what perspective are you looking at somebody from or looking at something from? Okay, so now we're on the section that's called the equality of samsara and nirvana. We tend to judge people based on their body, their looks, okay, their age, obvious things that we can know about them without knowing anything at all about what they think or what they feel or their life experiences. But we judge them based on that outer appearance. And in doing so, we forget that they all were once our kind parents and that as long as we are in samsara, they will be our friends, our parents, our teachers. We'll be in all sorts of relationships with them. So given that they are not inherently uh, a person with inherent qualities that they will always have. 
then it's really kind of uh, incorrect and unfair that we judge them according to their appearances in this life. So it's good if we practice seeing beyond those appearances, even seeing beyond their habitual uh, qualities, their personalities, and see that the important thing we all have in common is the wish for happiness and not suffering. And in that way, feel a certain closeness to others because we understand something very important about them and feel close to them also because they've been kind to us in samsara. So in that way, cultivate compassion and let that compassion grow into the great resolve to bring them happiness and alleviate their misery. And for that, in turn, to grow into bodhicitta. So we're talking about the equality of samsara and nirvana. So from the perspective of their ultimate nature, all the afflictive phenomena of samsara and all the purified phenomena of nirvana are equally empty. Now that sounds great. You know, you hear that, oh yeah. But then you think, okay, what are some of the afflictive phenomena of samsara? Yeah, those uh, the um, mass graves that they are discovering in Ukraine with four hundred bodies in them. Yeah, and the purified phenomena of Nirvana, like infinite compassion. So, on a conventional nature, those two are really far apart. Yeah. When we look at their ultimate nature, they have the same ultimate nature. They're both empty of inherent existence. But it's hard for us to really put them together in that way because we see the, you know, the outer appearance and it, the difference is, you know, stunning, shocking, disgusting. Many words can describe it. Okay, so this is the context when we talk about the afflictive phenomena of samsara and the purified phenomena of nirvana. 
um, being equally empty. This is said in the context of the expressions, the equality of samsara and nirvana. So you may have heard that. Yeah, people kind of throw that around. Oh, samsara and nirvana, they're equal. Yeah, yeah. You want to go sit in one of those mass graves and say that that's equal to your yacht? Okay. It's also the expression, the unity of samsara and nirvana. Yeah. But samsara and nirvana on the conventional level certainly are not unified, are they? So it's interesting, isn't it? how things can be diametrically opposed on the conventional level and have the same ultimate nature. Another expression that that, uh, expresses this is the one taste of all phenomena. What's the one taste? Emptiness, okay. And similar phrases found in the sutras and tantras. So Nagarjuna mentioned this in his treatise on the Middle Way, and Hari Bhajra spoke of it in his commentary to the Ornament of Clear Realizations. And Sokapa also explained this in his elucidation of the five stages of Guya Samaja. So in both Sutra and Tantric texts, this is spoken of. From the perspective that the emptiness of the mind is called natural nirvana, and that this emptiness of the mind exists while we are in samsara, it is said that samsara and nirvana are not different. Okay? The emptiness of the mind, you know, is in while we're in samsara, when we are on the path, when we attain Buddhahood, the, the nature of, ultimate nature of the mind is always emptiness, okay? And that emptiness doesn't change. So, you know, we, it can be called the one taste of emptiness, and we can also say samsara and nirvana are not different on that, from that perspective. In this context, it is said that if one realizes the nature of samsara, one actualizes nirvana. Yeah, that's a pretty nifty phrase. Okay. If one realizes the nature of samsara, well, there's two natures of samsara, the conventional and the ultimate nature. So which of the natures of samsara are you wanting to realize? The ultimate nature, the emptiness of samsara. And if you do that... The wisdom realizing that can uh, eradicate all the afflictions so that one can actualize nirvana. Yeah. So it's interesting to think when we think of uh, true dukkha and uh, the true origin of dukkha, the first two of the four truths, yeah, how they relate to the last two, to true cessations and true paths. Yeah, because in one way, eliminating the first two, you get the last two. In another way, the nature, the ultimate nature of all four of them is empty. And you might remember His Holiness said it just this last week in, in one of the teachings, how he uh, he goes through, um, you know, true dukkha is to be um, abandoned, 
person you had to eradicate to to cause is also to be. But he used a different word. To cause is to be. What? Oh, to yeah, to duke is to be recognized. To cause to be abandoned. True cessation to be actualized and true path to be realized. Okay, but yeah, ultimately there's no true path to uh, to under to know. There's no true uh, cessation, a true cause to um, eradicate, to abandon. There's no true cessation to actualize. There's no true path to realize. Yeah. So he he said it, I think, once or twice in this last week. But it's very potent if you think about it, the, the, all these different ways of speaking about the four truths and how they relate and how His Holiness goes from the conventional nature to the ultimate nature and back again. Okay, so in this context, it is said that if one realizes the nature of samsara, one actualizes nirvana. But since samsara and nirvana are different entities conventionally, they may be called the manifold, in that their ultimate nature is the same taste, emptiness. It is said that the one taste is manifold, and the manifold has one taste. Okay, manifold means like diversity, Okay, so the diversity of um, of uh, conventional phenomena has the one uh, one taste of emptiness, the, the same uh, ultimate nature, and emptiness, you know, has many different. It can be found in in the diverse phenomena. Okay, in the manifold. Okay. Yeah, so it is said that one taste is manifold. Yeah, emptiness is in a lot of objects, and the manifold has one taste. All those conventional objects are have the ultimate nature of emptiness. This means that emptiness is the nature of all manifold phenomena of samsara and nirvana, and that all these manifold phenomena have the same ultimate nature the emptiness of inherent existence. In other words, from the perspective perspective of the substratum, substratum here means the objects that have this empty nature. Okay, from the perspective of the substratum, the thermos, the animals, the carpet, and so so on. Um, uh, from that perspective of the substratum, Phenomena are many and varied, as we can see. But from the perspective of their ultimate nature, they share the one nature of emptiness. So they're diverse, plentiful, and they also have the same ultimate nature. Understanding that samsara and nirvana are equal in being empty of true existence is important for ordinary, unawakened people who grasp both samsara and nirvana as truly existent. So neither of them are truly existent. We grasp them as truly existent. Yeah. 
When such people view samsara and nirvana, they don't just see them as bad and good, uh, respectively, on the conventional level, but uh, they also grasp them as inherently so. Okay, so in- samsara is inherently awful, and nirvana is inherently fantastic. Okay. So it's easy to see them like that, isn't it? Yeah, because who wants samsara and we all want nirvana. So we, we, you know, ascribe those qualities and then think that those qualities inhere in the objects and are the permanent, ultimate nature of those objects. But such grasping diminishes our confidence in being able to free ourselves from samsara and to actualize nirvana. This is because our minds are not uh, not only highlight the faults of samsara, but also see them as fixed and unchangeable, as if they could never be abandoned. So this is one of the disadvantages of grasping an inherent existence, is we make everything fixed, it's unchangeable, it's concrete, there's nothing to do about it, it's inherently awful in the case of samsara. So, you know, how are we ever going to overcome samsara? There's 84,000 afflictions, and they're all in my mind, and they're inherently existent in my mind, and they're all inherently bad, and I can't get rid of them, and it takes too long, and it's too much energy, and blah, blah. Okay? Yeah, you know the picture. Okay, so we see them as fixed and unchangeable, as if they could never be abandoned. Similarly, we see nirvana as independently good, and thus too exalted for us to actualize. So the arhats have attained nirvana, yeah, the eighth and ninth and tenth Bhumi Bodhisattvas have eliminated all the afflictives, obscurations, and have their realization equivalent to an Arhat's Nirvana in the sense of being free from those obscurations. Buddhahood is even more fantastic. So these are all inherently good and in wonder- wonderful. And how am I ever going to attain them? Okay. And this also. Yeah, I think when we look at the tulku system, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, in one way, the tulku system, um, we can see it in a way that really uh, helps our practice. In another way, we can see it as an inherently existent, whereas it doesn't. So, for example, yeah, if we see it, because it's... uh, it's a system to pass down property. It's a system to make sure that uh, young children who show remarkable signs or who hopefully show remarkable signs will get a good education. Okay. So from that perspective and and also when when you know people are mourning and grieving over the death of their teacher if they think their teacher will come back it gives them some hope okay so on that side it's okay on the other side we look at rimbachase and well they were born rimbachase they were born that way yeah 
So how how am I ever going to get enlightened? Because I wasn't born with all their realizations. Yeah. I was born, you know, confused little old me. Yeah, who ran around crazy as a teenager, you know. So when we grasp Rinpoche's as inherently existent, it functions in a way that discourages us from practicing. Yeah. Because they were born that way, and I wasn't. So how can I ever advance? Yeah? And so that's why His His Holiness is, um, you know, He's... He's quite strong about this and and says, don't look at people's titles, look at their qualities. But we look at the titles, you know, and especially uh, if somebody has one title piled on top of another title piled on top of another title, you know, then we grasp all of that as truly existent and, you know, they're up there and I'm here and so... You know, what's the use? And so that kind of attitude is is not very helpful in our practice. Okay? And so that's why he says, look at people's qualities, not at their titles. And why he says to the Rinpoche's that, you know, this is just social status. And so don't get attached to it. If you have that title, you have the responsibility to... uh you know, to act according to it. And if, you know, and, uh, you know, if, if in fact you are proper, properly selected, then you have the responsibility to uphold, uh, you know, what your predecessor did. Yeah. Because I've, I've seen that, you know, because a number of my teachers have died and then the incarnations have been found. And I remember when I went to see, uh, yeah, uh, Osa Lama Yeshi's incarnation. And I, you know, I had seen him when he was a baby and then later I saw him when uh, when he was a little bit older and I came out from, from that. And the first person, first thing someone asked me is, did he recognize you? You know, so it's like, you know, here is the same exact person as Lama Yeshi, except in a different body. So, of course, he should recognize me because it's the same person. No, it's not the same person. Yeah, it's in the same continuity of consciousness, but it's not one lifetime and another lifetime or different people. Remember, you have the general eye and the the uh, specific eyes. So the specific eyes are different people, but they're in the same continuity that form the general eye. Yeah, but people were like all excited, as you know, as if this this little kid, you know, was exactly Lama Yeshe, and they expected him to act like Lama, and of course he didn't. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, we shouldn't cast these things in concrete. And, you know, I never knew the 13th Dalai Lama, but from what I hear, the personality of the 13th and 14th Dalai Lamas are very, very different. 
Yeah, people said the 13th Dalai Lama was quite stern. Yeah, 14th Dalai Lama in general is not stern. Okay? So, you know, there, but we, we concretize everything, and then it, it, yeah, it creates problems. It develops all sorts of expectations. And I really feel for uh, some of these kids who are recognized as, as Rinpoche's because everybody piles all their expectations on them based on the previous life, yeah, but, you know, they're a kid, they're a different person now in a different situation, and, you know, it's awful what people often expect from them. Kashila, yeah. you have any comments on that? Yeah, I agree with you. And in terms of continuum, particularly the settlers, uh, clear like mine, mm -hmm. there's no death, no birth. That's the only one that's continuing. On that basis, together with its uh, substratum or its accompanying uh, energy, mm -hmm. that's who we are ultimately. See, at the time of death, that's I. None, that is none of our other conventionally known aspects. But then that too is momentarily changing. That too is what? That too is momentarily changing. Yes. So nothing is static, yeah. let alone the gross person, but even the subtlest level is not yeah. static. Yeah. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing independent of other factors. Yeah. Yeah, so if we have this idea, like, um, I just thinking, I just think of that there was a couple at the time of the Buddha who, um, who said to the Buddha, you know, oh, we love each other so much. We want to be born as husband and wife in our future lives. Yeah, and so Buddha taught them how to create the cause for that. Yeah, but they're thinking of themselves as being permanent people with permanent personalities that are going to have the same kind of relationship in the next life. But of course, you know, that's not going to be... They're, they're going to be different. Yeah. Okay, understanding that samsara and nirvana are of one taste counteracts the grasping that binds us to samsara. Seeing both of them as empty of true existence, we become confident that however many faults samsara has, they can all be eliminated and that all the excellent qualities of nirvana can be actualized. It is a matter of stopping the causes for samsara and creating the causes to attain nirvana. So whenever we talk of causes and conditions, we're talking about impermanent phenomena. Okay. If something inherently exists, it, 
does not have cause and causes and conditions. It is permanent, yeah, because something inherently existent has its own inherent nature. It doesn't depend on being produced from something else. Yeah, it doesn't depend on anything else. Okay, so as soon as we start talking of causes and conditions, we should have the idea, oh, empty, empty. Mm-hmm. Saying samsara and nirvana are equal does not mean that being in samsara is the same as being in nirvana or that we need not try to see samsara and attain nirvana. So these are the wacky ideas that can come from reading a certain phrases in texts that sound wonderful, but you don't understand them properly, then you get these kind of ideas. Conventionally, samsara and nirvana are different. The bases of their emptiness are different. A mind in samsara is one trapped in dukkha by afflictions and karma. A mind in nirvana is one that has generated the true path and actualize the final truth cessation. Although samsara and nirvana are said to be equal from the viewpoint of their ultimate nature, emptiness, on the conventional level, each has its own distinctive features. Samsara is to be abandoned and nirvana is to be actualized. So when you really think about it, you know, the, how different they are conventionally and yet how their ultimate nature is undifferentiable in terms of direct experience of it. Yeah, that's really, when you think about them, that, you know, how can they be so totally opposite, and yet their deeper nature is the same. So that also, I think, reminds us not to judge Because when we see conventional things as inherently existent, as permanent, unchangeable, yeah, then we judge people and things as like this, and that's it, and they can never change. Yeah. And that way of thinking traps us. I mean, that's real clear, isn't it? Some people may glibly say samsara and nirvana are the same. Good and bad don't exist. Awakening is beyond such dualistic distinctions. And on that basis, these people ignore ethical conduct. So this unfortunately happens. This may sound well and good. No good, no bad. They're all one on the ultimate nature. They're all empty, so you can't distinguish them. Yeah. So you don't need to keep precepts because if you see the emptiness of everything, then they all dissolve and become one. Yeah. Actually, His Holiness says that the people who have realized emptiness directly keep the most excellent. Uh, ethical conduct and follow the precepts the most closely. Yeah. Because they realize 
that emptiness and dependent arising come to the same point. They're not contradictory. They're not going in other directions. They're coming to the same point. So if they're if things are empty, they're also dependent arising. If they're dependent arising, then the causes we create, yeah, are going to ripen into the effects that we experience. So we need to be careful with that. Okay, so this may, you know, good, samsara and nirvana are the same, good and bad don't exist, awakening is beyond dualistic distinctions, I just abide in non-conceptual, non-duality all the time. His Holiness says, but these people, this may sound well and good, but the moment their stomach hurts or they are criticized, these people scream, this is bad, stop it. Yeah. So, you know, it's showing what we, what they say by the mouth is totally, is not integrated in who they are. They understand certain words and twist the meaning but when push comes to shove, you know, they don't say, oh, it's all one. There's no distinction. Yeah. To avoid such dilemmas, it is important to study and correctly understand the meaning of some of the enticing phrases in the scriptures. Okay, the next section is on the levels of mind. So both Sutrayana and Tantrayana speak of different levels of mind. In Sutrayana, the principal factor distinguishing various levels of mind is the depth of single-pointed concentration. This is a general statement, okay? Beings in the desire realm have coarse states of mind. Those in the four form realms and the four formless realms have progressively progressively subtler and more refined states of mind corresponding to their progressively deeper states of concentration. Yeah, so when you read about the the lives of the beings in the form realm and then in the form formless realm, you can see that the minds are getting more and more refined. And how different it is. I mean in the desire realm, we're just like totally glued to sense objects, totally obsessed with external sense objects all day, all night, yeah. Um, and our minds are, are not very subtle that way, okay. The subtlest mind here is talking about from Sutriyana view. The subtlest mind is that at the peak of samsara, which is also called um, neither discrimination nor non-discrimination. That's the name of that realm. This mind is considered coarse compared to the subtlest mind presented in Tantra. So in highest yoga Tantra, the levels of mind are differentiated by the physical conditions of the body. So here, what differentiates gross and subtle? Yeah, in Sutrayana and Tantrayana, the criteria is different. Yeah. In Sutrayana, it's the depth of single 
point in concentration. In Tantrayana, it's the um, the the physical faculties, particularly the winds. Okay, the energy winds. So when the sense uh, faculties are active, the sense consciousnesses function. This is according to highest yoga tantra, and they are the coarsest level of mind. The dream state is a little subtler because at that time the sense faculties do not function, although the brain is still active and the eyes move during REM sleep. Deep sleep and fainting are even subtler. Okay, The brain's still functioning, but there's no REM at that time. The subtlest level of mind which can function apart from the physical body. So the brain can be totally dead, but the subtlest level of mind can function apart from the physical body. This manifests at the time of death, yeah, or when you're doing special tantric practices. So this is uh, the fundamental innate clear light mind. And it is uh, accompanied by a very subtle wind, which is its mount. This subtlest mind and subtlest wind are one entity, but nominally different. Okay, That is, one cannot exist without the other, yeah? although they can be spoken of separately. So, you know, here's another thing, two things that are one entity, but the subtlest mind and the subtlest wind, conventionally, yeah, we, they're different and they perform different functions. Okay, but they're, you know, you can't uh, tear them apart from each other. You can't separate them. Hmm. The term clear light has various meanings depending on the context. Okay, depending on the context, from different perspectives. So in the sutra vehicle, the term clear light refers first to the clear and cognizant nature of the conventional mind, which is called the subject clear light. Okay. And here saying the mind is clear light, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's made of light that's clear. <laughs> it means that uh, it, it, it implies that the afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations are adventitious and do not exist in the nature of the mind. So when you say the mind is clear light, we're talking about the subject, the subject clear light, yeah, which is a a consciousness that cognizes objects. Sometimes people will translate this as subjective clear light, but subjective is incorrect. It makes it sound like this mind is completely partial and subjective, you know, uh, which it isn't, yeah. Um, and then second of all, the term clear light, again in sutra, uh, can indicate the emptiness of the mind, which is called the object clear light, 
the ultimate nature of the mind. So some people would say the objective clear light, but that makes it sound that like the consciousness is subjective and the object is objective, and that doesn't make any sense. So if you, when you hear it translated that way, you know, in your mind, think the subject clear light and the object clear light. Mm-hmm. So the subject clear light is a consciousness, yeah, in which the afflict- the two obscurations are adventitious as the clear and cognizant nature of that mind. And then um, the emptiness of the mind is the object clear light. Uh-huh. So uh, I think this, you know, when we say mig-may-tse-way, mig-may means no object, with objectless, okay? Objectless usually refers to emptiness. Not that emptiness has no object, but it or is no object, but it means that when you say mig-may, it's there is no inherently existent object. Okay, so in the mig-sema, mig-may-tse-way, yeah, so compassion, objectiveless compassion. So compassion that know that uh, is together with with emptiness, with a mind that also understands emptiness. Okay, yeah? Remember when we studied the three kinds of compassion from Jandrakirti? So this is the third one. Migme, yeah, objectless compassion, or refers to compassion that itself is empty, but it knows the emptiness of sentient beings too. Okay, so that's the sutra perspective. So here you can see the term clear light. One, one way of using it, it's a consciousness which is a veiled truth. Another way of using the term, it's an emptiness, an ultimate truth. Yeah. So just be aware of this and don't get as confused as you could. <laughs> okay. So in both Sutra and Tantra, uh, the subject clear light is the awareness that cognizes the object clear light. However, the subject clear light mind spoken of in Tantra is far subtler than this one spoken of in Sutra. When we say Sutra and Yana and Tantra, it's short for Sutrayana, the Sutra vehicle, and Tantrayana, the Tantric vehicle. Yeah, it doesn't mean in Sutra and Tantra, you know, like you open a, a Sutra text and you open a Tantric text. It doesn't mean that. Okay. Okay. However, the subject clear light spoken of in Tantra is far subtler. This innate clear light mind is a special mind because it is the source or basis of all phenomena in samsara and nirvana. So this is the mind Geshe was just talking of. This subtlest mind continues from one life to the next. It is not a soul or a self. It changes moment by moment 
and it's empty of inherent existence. At death, the coarser levels of mind have absorbed into the innate clear light mind. And after rebirth, the coarser consciousnesses reemerge reemerge from the basis of the innate clear light mind. Okay, so when we talk about the eight dissolutions at the time of death, yeah, when the elements lose uh, and the winds are losing the ability to support the grosser consciousnesses, then the winds and the grosser mental states are, are absorbing. And at the end of the process of absorbing, uh, they're all dissolved into the subtlest, um, the clear light mind. In other words, the 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 subtle, the extremely subtle um, mind and body, which are undifferentiable and one nature, they all dissolve into that. And that, which isn't a soul, isn't a self, it's impermanent. That is what. Uh, leaves one body and goes on to the next body. And so it's when that, uh, you know, extremely subtle mind when leaves the body, that is when the last moment when it's in the body is the time of death, the next moment they're in the bardo. Okay. So when these coarser levels of consciousness exist, Constructive and destructive thoughts and emotions arise and karma is created, as we see every day. Okay, The result of afflictive thoughts and actions is samsara. The result of thoughts and actions purified by the realization of emptiness is nirvana. The presence of ignorance or wisdom determines whether this mind is in samsara or nirvana. It is said that the innate clear light mind is the creator in that it is the source or basis of samsara and nirvana. So usually we are negating creator, creator, creator. There's no creator. When we, in that context, creator means an external divinity who is usually described as permanent, who created the world and who manages the world and judges sentient beings and determines what happens. That kind of creator is completely negated in Buddhism. When we say that the uh, subtlest clear light uh, mind or the subtlest union of, of uh, mind and wind is the creator. It, it means something different. It means that everything originates from that mind. But that mind is not an external being who's thinking, oh, now I'm going to create or anything like that. Okay. Um, so the, clear, the innate clear light mind is the creator in that it is the source or basis of samsara and nirvana. This indicates that phenomena do not arise causelessly, nor are they created by an external creator. Okay. To make an analogy, owing to the climate of a particular place, 
plants and animals come to exist. From that perspective, we say the climate of a place creates the living things that are there because it acts as their basis. Yeah, when we say the climate creates the plants and animals, it doesn't mean the climate is the substantial cause that changes into the plants and animals. It just means it's the basis, you know, on which the plants and animals can grow. Similarly, because the innate clear light mind exists, all the phenomena of samsara and nirvana become possible. How this actually happens, I think, is one of the extremely, most extremely, you know, difficult points to understand that probably only a Buddha does. Saying that the clear light mind is the source of all phenomena in samsara and nirvana is a general statement. It does not mean that the subtlest mind wind is the substantial cause for phenomena in samsara and nirvana. Okay, a seed is the substantial cause for the flower. Yeah, uh, cooking flour, you know, wheat flour is the substantial cause for a cake. Okay, but here it doesn't mean that the, the um, subtlest mind wind turns into all those things, but it's the basis of them. Okay, nor does it mean that all phenomena arise from my clear light mind or your clear light mind. Yeah, <laughs> clear light mind is the source of samsara and nirvana. Who's clear light mind? Oh, my clear light mind, I'm creating samsara. You know, the other guy goes, no, I'm creating samsara. No, I'm creating nirvana. You know, it, it's not talking about, you know, yours and mine. It's just making a general statement. Furthermore, yeah, it is not the same as the Chittamadrans asserting that all phenomena are the nature of mind, which refers to their unique tenet that an object and the consciousness perceiving it arise from the same substantial cause, a latency on the foundation consciousness. Remember? Yeah. So, it, you know, saying that everything uh, is created or arises from the uh, extremely subtle mind wind, it's not like the cheetah mantras are talking about. Okay? Saying that the clear light mind is the source of all phenomena in samsara and nirvana means that phenomena exist in relation to the mind. All phenomena exist by being merely designated by mind. This conclusion is arrived at because all other possibilities, such as objective existence and existence from its own side, are untenable and can be refuted. Okay, so then the thing is, what does it mean all phenomena exist by being merely designated by mind. Yeah. So when we're first introduced to that phrase, it's the example is, is usually given. Well, somebody becomes a precedent. Yeah. When, well, this example used to be a good one. 
It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, the, the example used to, you know, somebody is, it becomes the president uh, when they win an election and the population agree to call them the, the president. Oh, that doesn't work anymore. Um, so we need another example. Something, the you know, um, what's a good example? Well, somebody becomes a, a student when they are learning things and other people are teaching them. Something like that. Okay. In other words, it exists in relationship uh, in that sense to society and it, it receives a name that everybody has agreed sometimes refers to the same object. That is what is so confusing now. Yeah, is the same words are used now and they are referring to exact opposite things. Yeah, you, you hear right wing and left wing people both saying, we believe in democracy, we're patriots, we are standing up for the Republican, uh, for the Republic, we want free and fair elections. Everybody says, we want free and fair elections. But they have very different definitions of those terms. Yeah. And different definitions of what an election is and what when an election is, and I mean, and that's, you know, when you look at that, we all used to have some, not exactly the same, but, you know, kind of the same meaning of these words. But now, you know, it's, yeah, so people get really confused, you know, because I get all these, you probably do too, all these kind of things to, you know, people want me to sign this or donate to this, and I usually unsubscribe, and then they resubscribe me again after a week, and then I unsubscribe again, and then they resub, you know. So, um, but, you know, you get these things, and when you first read certain words, it's like I used to go, oh, I like those words, you know, free and fair elections, I like that. But then I think of what other people mean by free and fair elections. And they mean something very different than what I mean. Yeah. So, if the, yeah, it's... Yeah. And truth, just the word truth, you know. I mean, Kellyanne was perfect when she said alternative facts. Alternative facts. Yeah, truth has two sets of facts. Well, more than two sets, many alternative facts. Yeah. So we can't even agree on what happened in a certain situation. Hmm. Okay, the Kala Chakra Tantra explains that the ultimate goal, Buddhahood, is based on the subtlest clear light mind. The coarse levels of mind cannot be transformed into the omniscient mind of a Buddha. 
That makes sense. Our opinionated mind filled with likes and dislikes, that mind is not going to become a Buddha. Okay. And also it's a coarse level, a very coarse level of mind. And coarse levels of minds don't become Buddhas. Only the subtlest level does. Oh, that's the next sentence. Only the subtlest mind wind, which is beginningless and endless, can continue to Buddhahood. By employing the special practices of highest yoga tantra to neutralize the coarser levels of mind, the defilements present with the coarser levels of mind dissolve and the subtler levels of mind arise. Okay. When this happens in ordinary beings, yes, the afflictions dissolve, but that person is not free of the afflictions. The afflictions just are not able to function at that time because the mind is too subtle for them. Okay. When accompanied by wisdom, these progressively subtler levels of mind have more power to effectively change and purify the mind. When the subtlest mind win is activated, made blissful, and used to realize emptiness directly, it is extremely effective in rooting out the deepest and most entrenched obscurations. Okay. So this is a one. There's many factors that differentiate sutra and tantra. This is one of the most important ones. Yeah. Kind of talk because, uh, you know, it's the subtlest clear light mind that can actually root out the uh, completely all the afflictions. That's according to tantra. According to sutra, you know, you can follow the sutra path and become a Buddha. But according to Tantra, you can follow the sutra path. I think it's it's to the 10th Bhumi, but then you have to enter the tantric vehicle. When all obscurations have been removed, this innate clear light mind becomes a Buddha's omniscient mind, the wisdom truth body of a Buddha. Its emptiness becomes the nature truth body, and the subtlest wind, which is together with that subtlest mind, transforms into a Buddha's form bodies, the enjoyment and emanation bodies by which a Buddha benefits sentient beings. The key to the tantric path is learning how to make manifest the subtlest mind wind and use it to accumulate merit and wisdom and attain full awakening. So that's another really unique uh, quality of Tantra. Yeah, utilizing that subtle mind wind to accumulate merit and, uh, and accumulate wisdom. Yeah. And that's the mind that attains Buddhahood. Yeah. So this begins with gaining a comprehensive understanding of the entire Buddhist path from beginning to end. Okay, so the path begins with gaining a comprehensive understanding of the entire Buddhist path from beginning to end, and then generating the three principal aspects of the path, 
the aspiration for liberation, bodhicitta, and the correct view of emptiness. So that's how we begin the whole thing. Yeah, so that means we have to study. We have to think about things. Yeah. We just don't jump in, close our eyes, and say, you know, get rid of everything from our mind and say, I'm enlightened now. Okay. So we have to actualize those three principal aspects. When properly prepared, so that's the prop, the preparation. Yeah, having the correct view of emptiness and generating bodhicitta and, and renunciation. That's the preparation. Yeah, is that easy? Are those three things easy? Yeah. Okay. When properly, so this, this is so important so that we get the right understanding of what we're doing and how it's done. Otherwise, we just, you know, go in, we hear a few words, and we think we're there. I mean, I remember doing that at the very beginning. Um, you know, I heard, I heard the term um, subtle mind, okay? So, but nobody defined it. I just heard, you know, there's the subtle mind. So I remember... One of my first med- my first or second meditation course, I'm sitting there and I start to notice all this very quiet chatter, not the noisy chatter in the mind, but the quieter level of chatter. And I thought, oh, that's the subtle mind. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. But you hear terms and then, you know, and the terms sound great. And then you see, oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Okay, when properly prepared in this way, we then receive empowerments into highest yoga tantra, abide with the tantric ethical restraints, and meditate on the generation and completion stages. This causes the winds the completion stages actually, causes the winds to enter, remain, and dissolve in the central channel, at which time all coarser levels of mind cease and the subtlest mind wind is activated. Actually, the the winds can start uh, to dissolve at the end of the generation stage, and then in the completion stage, that's when... Doing that's a real focus of the practice. The stage of example clear light is attained when this subtle blissful mind wind realizes the object clear light emptiness via a conceptual appearance. But mind you, when it talks about the extremely subtle mind having a conceptual appearance, it's not our ordinary conceptions and their conceptual appearances. Okay, when it cognizes emptiness directly, the stage of actual clear light is attained. Someone who has this attainment will become a Buddha in that very life. The discussion of clear light relates to the topic of Buddha nature, the potential of each and every sentient being to become a fully awakened Buddha. 
to which we now turn. And so then the next chapter uh, goes into Buddha nature. One or two questions or comments? Uh, the exalted wisdom mind and meditative equipoise, is that the fundamental clear light or is that the... When we're talking from a sutra perspective, it's not the fundamental innate mind of clear light. We only talk of the fundamental innate of clear mind of, of um, clear light in the context of tantra. Okay. So, but and when a bodhisattva is a meditative equipoise, directly realizing emptiness with that exalted wisdom mind, that's that's that, a that is a that is a mind that is. It's subtle, subtle. compared to. Our minds. Our, our minds now, mm -hmm. when the sense consciousnesses are functioning. Also compared to the dreaming mind, mm -hmm. okay, it's subtle compared to that. But yeah. not as subtle as the fundamental clear light. Exactly. But yeah. the emptiness that it's realizing is the same. Same emptiness that the, clear, the fundamental innate mind of clear light will realize. Okay. Yeah. And the fund it's the fundamental innate mind of clear light that realizes emptiness in, t in Tantra. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier it said the subject clear light is the awareness that cognizes the object clear light. Mm -hmm. At what point is that practice done? That's when you're meditating on emptiness. So... The um, subject, clear light, you know, meaning the clear and cognitive nature of the mind. Yeah. When you understand the object, clear light, uh, conceptually, yeah, then you have a conceptual realization of emptiness. That's the path of preparation, according to Sutra. And when you have a direct perception of emptiness, that's the path of seeing, according to Sutra. So in those cases, it's specifically the emptiness of the mind. Uh, it's the emptiness of all phenomena, but they emphasize the emptiness of the mind because then the mind knows its own ultimate nature. So that has a different impact than the mind knowing the ultimate nature of the thermos. Right. So yeah. that's the, the most ideal object. When yeah, when you get there, but you may you start when you're first understanding emptiness. You usually start with the chariot or the car, just so that you can understand how the logic works in a conceptual way, and then slowly you start. You know the emptiness of the eye. Usually, they recommend meditating on that first. Then the emptiness of the aggregates, and you know. And when you see perceive one of them uh, as empty, then when in terms of the um, the inferential realization, if you infer, let's say, the eye is empty, then when you turn your mind to any other object, it automatically knows that object is empty too. You don't have to go through all the reasoning again. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Um, how is the subtle mind when made blissful? That's in Tantra. And the bliss helps the, helps the wind dissolve. The dissolving of the winds 
yeah, into the central channel is what gets you to the, uh, the winds get subtler and subtler. And, and the bliss is what helps that to happen. Yeah. But it's different. You know, the word bliss means different things uh, in different contexts in Buddhism. Like the bliss of single-pointed concentration is different than this bliss that you talk about in Tantra. Don't ask me because I haven't experienced either of them. Okay, in any way, you probably couldn't describe either of them in words very adequately. Anything else? Okay, then let's dedicate.